Today's sponsor is Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person asking the Hamilton team to do a musical about the Obama presidency, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is DJ Patel from the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy. DJ is the country's first ever chief data scientist, and since assuming that role in February of 2015, he has worked on several technological initiatives within the government and recruiting other tech talent to the White House. Previously, he worked at places like LinkedIn, eBay, Relate IQ. DJ, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. Good. Let's go a little bit into your background because you're like a, you're a Silicon Valley guy. You've been around forever, correct? Uh, I like, have, but not in the usual way. Not in the usual. Well, explain, give me your background because we're going to get into what you've been doing as chief data scientist, yeah. which means you're chief geek, correct, of the, of the United States, um, or one of them. One of them. We think of POTUS as the, oh, he is uh, the, chief. the chief geek. Okay. Do we have to say POTUS? <laughs> That's right, POTUS. <laughs> well, um, that, well, we could say the president. Too, president. It just sounds like easier because yes. it is a Twitter so, handle. Um, so talk a little bit about your background and how you got to where you got and yeah. why you're qualified for this job. Uh, well, I actually grew up here in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, uh, moved here in 1984, Cupertino. Right. Cupertino at that time was- Why? What was the reason? Well, my dad actually, uh, he didn't get tenure, uh, so he decided to try to sh- build a company instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he- What was he, a professor uh, of- At MIT, he was electrical mm-hmm. engineering mm-hmm. and was working on the idea of how to actually build semiconductors in high density, uh, mm-hmm. very large scale integration. And people didn't believe at the time that that could be done just through simulations and fabulous, what is called fabulous semicon. Yep. And so um, he took his company, which at that time was just an idea with some grad students called Patil Systems Incorporated. And, and we were in Utah after where he had a small professorship. And then uh, started out here, and uh, re- the company got renamed as Cirrus Logic mm-hmm. back then. So I've heard it was, of it. It, it was kind of one of the early days. Uh-huh. But it, Cupertino back then was mostly Moffett Field support, right. um, a lot of military, a right. lot of. Uh, uh, Cupertino Electric. And so it was, um, I went to school named Monta Vista, which many people now know as, as Powerhouse. Back then it was a very different place. I think there was like eight Indians, maybe 20 Asians altogether. Mm-hmm. Just very different. It was phenomenal. I, I, you know, it was a community. A lot of people had gun ownership. Uh, mm-hmm. We went shooting out and uh, did a lot of target practice, those things. So it was a place where you actually interacted with a very different version of Silicon Valley. Right. Farming. Uh, farming and, mm-hmm. and agriculture. And I think I I got in military. And so I had a different, very different experience growing up that way. I also wasn't a very good student. So Mm -hmm. I I eventually, uh, because of my math classes, oddly enough. So I went to De Anza Junior College, uh, which is, most people know, off 280 and 85. Mm -hmm. And most people know it as the Flint Center. Mm -hmm. Uh, De Anza is one of those seminal institutions. This is why I'm such a big advocate of community college, because Mm -hmm. the community college is what got me, got me sorted out, because my girlfriend was taking this class called Calculus. So like you all good guys, smart people. I took the same class as she did, and uh-huh. it turned out I fell in love with it. Right. I, I, it was amazing. And so it was off to the races but this for wasn't, me. You didn't, a lot of people I talked to, they were mathematicians in school early in the fourth grade, and they had a parent that pushed them, but you weren't. No, I was quite the opposite. My mm-hmm. dad was so incredibly busy with his trying to make a company mm-hmm. uh, that there was no time to push me. I, mm-hmm. I just, and, you know, we were... 
It's kind of like everyone just wandered around and hung out by themselves. It was a very safe community. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of pressure. Right. Uh, but I think what it did do is it gave me space to be creative and try lots of other things. I was right. doing many other things. Right. I learned how to etch my own chip designs and all these things because it, there was a lot of vocational classes for sure. electronics. Right. I learned how to do drafting. But it was very different. And from, from that experience, I was able to kind of take that community college experience, go to UCSD, did my undergraduate degree in uh, very theoretical mathematics, but very much working on data. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in oceanography and those things of data. Mm -hmm. And then graduated rather quickly and then was able to go to University of Maryland, where I did my doctorate in nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory with the guy who right. coined the term chaos theory. Mm -hmm. uh, it was there for about 10 years. and it was. What were you trying to do there? What was the goal? What were you trying to study so in that? The big thing for me Explain that, the theory sure. for idiots. So the, the idea of, of chaos theory is that the world is incredibly susceptible to small changes. So a butterfly flapping its wings right. in one place could cause bribery, a, right. exactly, could kind of, uh, a tornado somewhere else or a lack of a tornado. So a lot of people thought, well, this had been understood for weather. And so what we did is we took a very fresh look at it and we showed that when you look at that five-day, seven-day, 10-day forecast, mm -hmm. when you open up the mm -hmm. you know, newspaper or now just open mm -hmm. up an app, how do you quantify whether that's a good forecast or bad? How do you quantify the re relative margins of success of that forecast, the, uh, the quality of it? And so what we found is that there, in different times, you could quantify that. And you could say that this is a storm, but this storm has high degree of unpredictability or very high degree of predictability mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. running many simulations and actually figuring out how you could fly a plane out there to take the observations to dramatically improve the forecast or just say, there's nothing you can do to improve this forecast just because right. it is so high dimensional chaotic. That became a, a big deal because it helped all the major weather forecast centers change the way they approach this and it's still being implemented to this day right it's got an idea called the maryland ensemble calm and filter huh and so i know it's, <laughs> just, we're, we're very original <laughs> it just trips just off the tongue. exactly yeah. uh and the cool thing about this is you know we talk about scale often here in silicon valley the, mm -hmm. the thing that i've had honestly the greatest scale mm -hmm. is my weather work because you think about the population of the world that receives a weather forecast and depends on it it's everybody it's almost everybody it's you know of the nearly 7 billion people now, so let's call it 3, 4 billion. So I feel pretty good on that side of what right. we're able to do. And people forget often that some of these unsexy areas actually have the greatest lift. For effect of the For human effect race. For the human, human race. race. So you did weather. Did weather. And then? 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And so I was part of the second wave of people who were asked to come in to think about threats against U.S. interests. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea of... How do we use large amounts of data to find signal and noise? And there's this question because the 9-11 hijackers. Data. Yes, there was a lot of data. There was a lot of data, but right. we didn't see a signal. And so mm -hmm. what is right? What is wrong? And also at that time, there was a lot of questions around privacy right. and security and responsibility of what's happening. Mm -hmm. We're having a similar parallel conversation today. Mm -hmm. Then that program was called Total Information Awareness. And I was on the side of one of the people that was asked to come and help right side that program, make sure it was in the right. right. And so that gave me a lot of, and that's why ethics and the ethics of data is so critical to me because mm -hmm. it was like, how did we get there with these things? And so we did a lot of that work and also ended up doing a lot of work in bioweapons proliferation prevention in Central Asia, finding bad, you know, places that were doing bad things and figuring mm -hmm. out what to do. 
So you were looking at data to try to get signals of attacks or also, well, also going in country, right. going in country and to find out how we could. Yeah. How do you, how do you bring together, not just as some esoteric step back from the world, look at Mm -hmm. data and do it from a lab, but using the combination of data to be in the field to make smarter decisions. So as opposed to say the old intelligence, which was hand-to-hand person, people. like that. That's right. It's right. a very augmented way, approach mm-hmm. of, of thinking mm-hmm. about the problem. Right. Uh, and those were early days. The interesting mm-hmm. thing is we often have this narrative right now of Silicon Valley is coming to save D.C. Mm-hmm. They forget no, that. No, it's just Silicon Valley that has that, but go that, ahead. That's true. Well, well but that's, a, and that's, they forget, everyone mm-hmm. forgets that all of us that were sort of that big data wave here in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, almost all of us came from the national security apparatus. Mm-hmm. Like we were all doing this in some form. Right. And uh, especially the people who were helping fight fraud at, you know, eBay or PayPal sure. or those types sure. of things. Well, the government did invent the internet. It, it, it's, <laughs> Forgetful it's as it's we are of that. And, and also self-driving cars come mm-hmm. from DARPA. Right. And, and this is one of the things that we forget is that the spark is often national. Mm-hmm. The flame and the culturing of the flame and making sure it all works, right. that, is, that is the rest of all the muscles that we have built out so of time. You're, so you're working in the government on a very important issue. Obviously, everyone's concerned with attacks and how to prevent mm-hmm. them. Why did you shift here? What was the impetus to do that? Well, the biggest one was— you can't have stopped working on that problem. It's still no, not solved. No, it, it was time to pass a baton, and, mm-hmm. and one of the big things for us was— my wife and I were commuting, and we had we had a child coming on the way, mm-hmm. and so we had to figure out how do we be in the same place together. And so I literally we just both packed up our bags. She was in New York, I was in D.C., and we just relocated here and saw what would happen. And the interesting thing is, most companies passed on me. Mm. You know, all the usual because. names. Didn't think I had much to add. Mm. They didn't say like they said. Well, we'll see what you could do. Right. Uh, luckily enough, uh, my mom was at a dinner party and happened to see uh, Rajiv Dutta, who was president of Skype at the time. Mm-hmm. And she harassed him into taking a call with me. Talk to my son. Talk to my son. Like, right. <laughs> do me a favor here. Talk to this, this right. kid. And um, he had the foresight to say, like, hey, actually, maybe there's value here. Mm-hmm. And I had some other friends working at eBay at the time, and they said there was this new initiative to work across these companies. And mm-hmm. so I was able to get in and start building things. And when we started building things, one of the things that people didn't realize at the time was an adversary who was attacking you was evolving faster than you could ever build rules, especially on fraud or security. And so we had to take a different approach. And so we took an approach that was what now people would call very similar to deep learning. Mm -hmm. It was neural networks, it was fast training, all these things. It was an idea that has been in national security and government circles for a long time. And we just implemented we just applied it right and what was the big problem there that people were just fraud all over just fraud and and you have a bad guy who's just you know you found a hole you've patched it and they found another way and your cycle time is so fast and Mm -hmm. and i remember this that even at uh, some of these companies that the time for greatest attack is like 5 p.m. on Friday because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they know it's like, and the attacks keep going <laughs> till like Sunday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're not there to fix they're it. They're not there to fix it. They know when you're, you're downtimes. They know mm-hmm. they, they're, very, they're very motivated to find your weaknesses in any mm-hmm. dimension. Right. Uh, and, if you're, and you need to augment systems. And this is why I think the, the work that we're doing on artificial intelligence at the White House is so important is that mm-hmm. we think of this as, you know, big infrastructure and super high-powered data scientists and machine learning people doing this. But mm-hmm. 
the person who's got your medical records right. is some physician of, of practice with three people. And now we have all of that information digital, good, because it helps us get sure. better care faster. Mm -hmm. But how do we protect them? Right. How do we how do we make sure that their systems are just as well protected? And they're that's not. They're they're not. And yeah. and, and there's that that's how do we bring up everyone's and they're not for many different layers. Mm -hmm. It turns out that's been one of the most interesting things. One reason is because the infrastructure of the technology that they're built on mm -hmm. is very old and antiquated. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things are built on top of building systems. Mm -hmm. The other is the classic two-factor authentication mm -hmm. and other good hygiene techniques that are just right. 101. I was just yelling at someone about that. Yeah. It, it, I go around in, in my talks or if I'm talking to a group, I just always – and I just did this at a major hospital. How mm -hmm. many people in the audience of the physicians had two-factor auth on? It was only like a third. Right. They didn't even know what right. it was. Right. I, th I think it's our fault because we call it two-factor auth, which yes. is like – Yes, it's a bad – all like your names whole, so far have just been awful. It, it, um, but so you were doing fraud there, fraud yeah. and trying to prevent fraud. And, mm -hmm. you know, you I probably saw the beginnings of the stuff that's going on now, like how the, 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 they become more and more sophisticated, these players. That's right. The evolutionary war has been going on for a substantially long period of time. And – the what has happened is we're just seeing it now bleed over to more and more areas, mm -hmm. and especially as we get online, and you know, especially with the Internet of Things and people not realizing what can happen. One of the classic problems that we're also seeing is the way people are trained. Mm -hmm. So if you have a person who's training to you know taking computer science one hundred and one and they're learning about a database, mm -hmm. they learn about a database, but they never learn about an overflow attack mm -hmm. or any of the classic ways that sure. you can compromise yeah. a database. Same way with scripting or any of these things. So our belief is, and what we've called for, is every student that's training in any technical area must have security and ethics built in as part of the core curriculum. Right. Because now we're in that day and era where somebody builds one of these Internet of Things and they haven't even thought through what How the attacker gonna is going to be like. Right, exactly. We'll get to that in a minute. So you worked there, and then you worked at LinkedIn. I and, and I became real good friends with Reid Hoffman. And yeah. When we were thinking about what's the thing that could carry LinkedIn to the next level, mm -hmm. realize that it's sitting on an amazing data asset. Right. It is all data. That's uh, why it's all data. Bought. And how do you make that come alive? Mm -hmm. How do you make – and one of the big differences we did is, like many of the other companies, data was like a research team or, mm -hmm. you know – some R&D, they spend a lot of time writing sure. papers and then they, you try to go talk, knock on the door of a product and they say, not now, we got this other yeah. idea. Yeah. We flipped it completely around where I was one of the direct product leads. Right. And so I was able to take those ideas and advocate for them with the rest of the product teams right. and say, like, so how can So you we were trying this? to take the data that you'd collected and make it useful to the users. That's right. So everything from people you may know to, you know, you viewed this profile, you might like this profile, jobs you might like. All of those Why areas. was there that disconnect? Because it seems like data would be at the center of all product development. I think one of the challenges that we have is we have a lot of people who don't actually come from technical backgrounds, but mm -hmm. they're more focused on how do I just get this thing to grow? How mm -hmm. do I do this? And this is a marketing. classic marketing slash product, but not true deep technical product. And right. so it's a veneer of product. Right. Rather than saying, okay, how am I going to truly make this come alive and mm -hmm. make this system work for you and, and make it super simple? And, the, you know, there's a, the, if we look at a lot of our systems, we go, geez, why doesn't it work that way? Right. And, and we're seeing this in one of the things that's been, I think, really interesting to me is, is we're starting to see voice. You know, one of the things is whether it's, what do we call this voice? Is it like, what word do we use? Do we use Nicole versus... Uh -huh. 
Sally versus Tom versus Jerome versus mm-hmm. Tanya. Like these things actually have big impacts. Sure. But also absolutely. their tenor and how they talk to us. Yeah. The softness. They don't have that approach. And so they almost have an arrogance or coldness. It, it's off-putting. Mm-hmm. And so, but you can make data actually fail gracefully and then you're, you will help it along. Really? And make it better. Really? And, and so like, like you want all a classic I example? I kill Siri. That's all I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, so like it doesn't correct, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like autocorrect. Why doesn't autocorrect mm-hmm. every time you kind of, you're like, I enter this five times. Right, like, exactly. You why doesn't autocorrect like, correct? Why don't you do that? That's a failure of the feedback loop as it's getting data right. to actually turn that into your system. Now, imagine that was equivalent of data that was coming in from an attacker. Mm-hmm. If the system didn't take that in right away. Right. It doesn't learn. You would lose a lot of money. And right. so they figured out that the economic incentive is so much on that side, mm-hmm. that version of the technology has not been put in that way. Right. Like autofill, autocomplete, those are in mm-hmm. some areas. Mm-hmm. But the ubiquity of this is, is uh, for everywhere it could be is astonishing. And in fact, one of the things that we've been really focusing on is how do you get that into every government process right, right where you learn where that's right learns. where it learns so we're going to talk about that in, in, after the break but so you went from these companies how did you get to the white house it wasn't my intention mm-hmm. to be honest you know mm-hmm. one of the things back, back, back to, to government back to government was so one of the things that i've always wanted to do was go back to public service in some form mm-hmm. i've never known if that's national or just you know helping out your local town the thing that was particularly when you get that call mm-hmm. uh it's weird like you don't know how to respond. You're like, what? What? What, what does this even mean? Like, what? What do you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, the thing I first did was I went and asked my wife because Relate IQ had just been acquired, mm-hmm. and so there's obviously a lot as, as everyone knows here. If you don't stay enough, there's a lot of implications. Sure. And so I asked my wife, what should you do? And she she didn't even bat an eye. She's like, you have to put your hat in the ring. You have to you have to start thinking about it. The thing that I think she saw that I couldn't see. Mm-hmm is that we always love to talk about mission and mission of our companies, and that's important. But when you're in these roles, you don't worry about stock options. You don't right. worry about it's just the mission. This. It's just the mission. Right. There's nothing else other than the mission. Right. The Secretary of Defense has a great way of saying it. He says, you know, there's nothing more powerful than waking up in the morning knowing you're part of something bigger. Right. And once you're part of it, it's extraordinarily liberating. It can be. It, absolutely can be because it has, doesn't have a – the same implications or incentives that, that's attached right. to it. And, and all we, the fear and the paranoia you have is letting a portion of society down or making a catastrophic error that in which people are going to get hurt right. or killed. Right. And, and that is uh, that is rewarding in a remarkable way. It's a different set of incentives. It's a, it's a different sure. incentives. We're here with DJ Paddle, the mm-hmm. chief data scientist of the United States of America. He's he's ending his tenure now. He showed up in February in early 2015. When we get back, we're going to talk about some of the things he's been doing as chief data scientist. And later, we'll be talking also about what happens next after the Obama presidency, which has been one of the most tech-friendly or tech-fast-forward presidencies, and what's coming afterwards. Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which is an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all of that wherever you are, thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own the books. DJ, what book should I listen to next? Uh, the one I just finished is Team of Rivals. Oh, uh, interesting. That's I, a classic. It's a classic. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Exactly. And the reason I love it is uh, I listened to it on the way into the White House and out mm-hmm. of the White House. 
And uh, it's very interesting to see the difference of the White House yeah. through the eyes of that, that history. Yeah, it's uh, the same building. Same building, and you just sort of don't realize the, yeah. the approach. And I just think of a, what incredible guts it took to do the things he did. Yeah, a lot of things. I'm yeah. reading Hamilton right now. Um, I'm actually reading it, yeah. and it's the same thing. It, I, I feel like the whole thing is going to pull apart in two seconds. I know how it turns out. That's right, but it's still it's sort like, of like, ah, we almost didn't. Ma- you don't realize how close we came to not making it. And that's the same thing with Team of Rivals. Mm-hmm. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month plus a 30% discount on regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. Today's show is also sponsored by FreshBooks, a super simple cloud accounting software that's helping over 5 million small businesses conquer their administrative and paperwork in less time with way less stress. It takes only 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice. And customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid three days faster on average. FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at an invoice you've emailed. They also track expenses, cash flow, and the time you're spending on each project. See how FreshBooks' thoughtful, innovative design can make a huge difference in how you deal with your day-to-day paperwork. To start your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash recode and enter recode decode in the How You Heard About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash recode to start your 30-day free trial. We're here with DJ Paddle, the Chief Data Scientist in the United States of America. You work for the Office of Science and Technology, which reports to the president. Let's talk a little bit about your tenure there. So you, you were just talking about how you went there. You have to do it. It's a big job. Um, you had previously been in government, unlike a lot of techies, and you liked it. You liked your time in government, presumably. What do you think? You're, you're the first chief data scientist. Why is that? And given data is so important to our government, and we churn out so much of it, the government does. And what you think you've accomplished. Let's talk about a couple of things you, you and you're going to do in the next you know, yeah. short amount of time. So uh- – you know, it's, I think the thing that's most interesting is like, why first, why do we need a new title? Yeah. Like, what's this? What's this role? And the part that I've always found incredibly curious to me is how do you get a president who's really a constitutional law professor mm-hmm. so excited about data and technology? Mm-hmm. And I think it really comes back from his time at his first campaign where he saw technology and data in particular transformative for how to reach to out to the the electorate and interact with them. And every mm-hmm. every turn where they have leveraged data and technology, the administration has re- gotten disproportionate benefit and ability to be effective. Mm-hmm. And so it's become more natural. There's effectively a chief economist, the chair of uh, Council of Economic Advisors. There's a chief statistician. There's a lot of really great people with data. What's been fascinating is they don't always talk to each other. Right. And what our role also is, what is the usable data for everybody? And so like all things in the government, you start with a mission. And so when we were thinking about our mission, the one we really settled on with the president is to responsibly unleash the power of data to benefit all Americans. Right. And, you know, we'll also return on our investment in data. Which you're collecting all this data and you want to do something with you it. You want to do effective. something with Now, it. cities have been doing that for much longer, correct? No, the government – well, government. it depends. I guess yeah. the government has because we have a census. Mm-hmm. And so the census has been going on for you know, the entire history mm-hmm. of the country. Mm-hmm. And that has been some of our most powerful data. But there's a lot of other data, that the economic forecasts and um, the weather data. All of these things are – 
at its core essence, the source of truth. And there's an incredible amount of process that goes on to make this data. What hasn't happened is the ability to flip this around and say, what happens when we open it up and how do people use it? That's why responsibly is in there as well. It's very chosen right. very carefully because opening up weather data is very different than opening up health data. Right. And so like, well, I guess right, the way you say this is where, if you want to get some data, where do you go get that? Right. How do you do it? So the where present, do you? And so it's data.gov. Right. It's actually really simple. There's, that is the one-stop area where everyone can go download the data that they that's want. Available. That's the available. The data that's available. That's currently out there. And the president has an executive order that says all data the federal government produces by default now must be both open and machine readable. Mm-hmm. The things there's uh, we're not there 100 percent across everything because there's a lot of what legacy were they doing on pieces of paper before, yeah, apps, sure or PDFs, were. right? A lot, PDFs, lot of PDFs, yeah. and so the data sure. isn't actually usable. And there's no cycle for if if you're looking at that data and you say, "Hey, I found a problem." There's no way to tell the person who's producing the data, "Hey, I found an error." Mm-hmm. Also, people haven't realized the disproportionate value that happens when that data is opened up. And, mm-hmm. and as an example, there was this kid that we have. Uh, we have a White House science fair now, thanks to this president. Mm-hmm. And uh, the year before last, we had this kid, he's 17 years old at the time, and he was looking, he wanted to use artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms to work just to play with. And so he found an open data set called dbGaP, which is uh, basically DNA snippet data with relative to cancer. Which is government data. It's government data. It's mm-hmm. held by the National Institutes for Health. Mm-hmm. He's looking at these sites on the genome that are relative for cancer, how to think about mm-hmm. cancer. His algorithms compete with the best algorithms mm-hmm. out there hmm. in the world on AI. And he's 17 years old. He just doesn't know better. Right. And he's just playing with open data. The way I got my, my and work— what was his point? What was he trying to do? He's just actually playing with AI, and right. then he's fallen in, into this, this area of realizing, like, wait, actually, I can work on cancer. And mm-hmm. so now he's able to broaden his research. My, my own weather data, I was downloading every night weather data— on all the computers I could get my hands on mm-hmm. and from the National Weather Service. So I, my own research is literally built on open data. I would not have my, my entire research career if it wasn't for the, the weather that was So your there. goal, number one, as data scientists was to open up more and more data, correct? More, open up more data and make it usable and then have people Meaning use readable. the data. Read- well, not just readable, but you should build something with that, with da- with that right. data. Right. So one of those examples is precision medicine. Mm-hmm. Our, which has been a big initiative. This is a big initiative. The president announced it uh, mm-hmm. the year before last, uh, State of the Union. And why uh, precision medicine? Well, the big thing here is we now can get our genome sequenced, mm-hmm. right? The t- costs have gone, f- you know, they're just yep. dropping every decade yep. just radically. So we're now at about, you know, $1,000. And, bef- mm-hmm. you know, a little while ago it was 10000 Before that was $10 and million. And it will be free. And it, it's going to be very, yeah, exactly. It's going to be paid right. for. Why would it get paid for? Because it's data. Well, not only because well, there's there's so that gets to a really important point of can you sell your data? Should you like who owns the data, which mm-hmm. is a big problem we work on. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, the the part there is actually if you get it sequenced, when you go to the pharmacist, why is it that nobody says, Hey, is your genome on file? Mm-hmm. Nobody checks if there's they anything in there. I was just at a pharmacist. A pharmacist. And and even so, your the drugs that you get, that pill that you get, the mm-hmm. pill that I get, it's not even often tested truly across ethnic Different, or I gender. Know. Right. And so we have a real, like, truly to enter the genomic era, we need a different approach. Well, it's sort of like, I think the way we do medicine right now, it's like, uh, it's an expression a friend of mine once wrote, it's like throwing a hammer at a piano to make music. 
It, in some you cases, know, yes. Just everyone it, gets the same. Everyone gets broad brushstroke things. Mm-hmm. There are populations that get highly, highly tailored medicine. That would be white but, guys, correct? Well, it, it's research institutions. Yeah. It's, you're basically around research institutions. And the challenge there is it is definitely upper class, upper middle class that has access to that. Mm-hmm. So we're not giving the population so uh, largely. So your point in, in the, the bringing the data together around precision medicine is that we're wasting efforts by not precisely medicating people well to to do this first what we need to do Mm -hmm. is we don't even have a place where we have a consistent data set Mm -hmm. that is says hey this is the genomic data of a large population of every ethnicity all our gender diversity and we're following it along to look for those classic big data correlations What's fascinating about this is we don't even look at some of the basic results that are not even genomic, but population health that says, oh, look, by the way, over here, here's a population that has increased amounts of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or or diabetes. diabetes. The Vioxx signature, for Mm -hmm. for those that remember the Vioxx, there's a clear-cut signal that says Vioxx was causing a problem. No one looked at the data. Right. Like, if you think of a monitoring yeah. system, there wasn't – nobody why, monitored it. Why is that? They're producing these reams and reams of data, and we are doing that every day on everything. Our, mm-hmm. our movements, our traffic movements, our uh, – what we eat, what we buy, what we're – everything we're doing is producing. And, and now with the phones, everywhere we go, everything we download, everything we look at. What? So you picked precision medicine because it was one area of waste, presumably, that we're wasting – no, not just waste, but opportunity. Right. There's a lot of people who this would massively benefit. A lot of people right. with so-called rare genomic disorders that aren't so rare. Right. They're actually very common. Right. If we understood the patterns between if we them understood and, the patterns. and we medicated them correctly. That's right. right. So where are we right now on that? So this, where have you taken this? So there's a few pieces that have happened that are, that are necessary to make this work. Mm-hmm. First of all is that we have to have the health records in a digital form. Right. And those have to be safe <laughs> and secure. So the good yeah. news, here's the good news. All right. It's over 10 years ago, it was something like 90% mm-hmm. were still on triplicate paper. Right. Now it's 97% of hospitals are on electronic medical records. Mm-hmm. The downside is your doctor is spending too much time to typing than talking to you. Right, exactly. And so we have a human-computer interaction problem that right. needs to be solved. The other problem is that there's a question of whose data is it. Right. And we believe in a world where if it's your data sitting in some type of hospital database that you're you've, you know, that's your record, mm-hmm. you should have access to it. Right. And you should have the ability to correct any errors that are in there. And, and all of that to make better system. And you should not have the ability for one group to block your information going to another, which has been happening. And we've put a lot of rules and other incentive structures in place to do that. To do that. The second part of that is how do we get together to build this type of research cohort? How do we get to make it an all-volunteer effort, national effort, to, to do this? And the National Institutes for Health will be driving that new program. And that will be coming out uh, in the late this year, beginnings of next year, as they start doing more and more prototypes of how to collect that data, build it out and in high, high quality. It. But we have another one that turns out to be a cornerstone. That is veterans at the Veterans Affairs have over 500,000 have stepped up to say they want to continue to serve and have given their data to do really high quality sequencing. Oh, all after those they've left the military. After they've already left the military. And they're 
They're just saying, use the data to help another veteran. Mm -hmm. That data set is, has the potential to unlock unbelievable insights, including on cancer and other types and, of diseases. And these veterans themselves. That's right. Because right. they probably suffer a unique set of circumstances. That's right. And those first set of research results will be coming back later this year and will mm -hmm. be aiming – they have to go through the but classic the goal, science process. The goal, presumably, in the end, is to get everybody. That's right. That's, and these sequenced. are these are broadly, broadly applicable things. But uh, can I just tell you about one problem sure. of this? absolutely. So very recently, there was a research team. Zach Kohani is a, the leader of this in Boston. He was able to show that there is a test that has been done on African-American males for uh, sudden cardiac death syndrome. You typically hear about this mm -hmm. of a player playing a sports and they collapse. And that genomic test has been giving a lot of false positives. Why has it been giving false positives? Because there hasn't been enough healthy African-American males in that wow. research cohort. So a lot of people have been misdiagnosed uh -huh. and also shows that the complexity of how the genome is is far greater. Right. And one of the things people miss about this, there's two things that people often forget about. For our healthcare system, one of the reasons the Affordable Care Act that the president put in place is so critical is that it says you cannot be limited in your healthcare. There's no pre-existing conditions. When we get to the genome, every one of us has a pre-existing sure. human. So he's yeah. being human. Right. The other thing that's that's in there as we start to move forward with this is just that we forget America's an incredibly diverse place. Mm -hmm. And the diversity of our population as we go after the next generation of healthcare, our diversity as a population is our asset. Because mm -hmm. we have lots of signals. We have a lot of signals. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have such an amazing ethnicity diversity across the country mm -hmm. is going to give us insights that is going to help one population versus another in ways that I don't think we if even we can unlock. If we continue with this. If we continue with right. this. So the second thing you're doing is policing, around policing. That's can right. you talk about that briefly, the, what you're doing? And of course, it's an enormous topic. Right. Because one of the issues, obviously, in the last, this election and everywhere else is how different communities are treated differently. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the president, uh, in the wake of Ferguson mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the, the shootings and the race relations that we're seeing across the country. He stood up a group for to give a report on 21st century policing, Task mm -hmm. Force on 21st Century Policing. A large number of those recommendations all say data and technology. Mm -hmm. Use data and technology. Yeah. Body cameras, collect the data. How much do we know about police shootings? Do we know about what's called low-level use of force, an officer pushing you, all these other things? Mm -hmm. Turns out, there isn't a lot of technology being used. Here. No. There's not a lot of data. Well, Data's not cams. even come. Body, well, body cameras, cameras is the way people now. think of it. Yeah. Body cameras is a kind of the, yeah. the carte blanche solution. Mm -hmm. So we have taken that on to say, what does that actually really look like? Mm -hmm. And there's two big projects that we've stood up. One is the President's Police Data Initiative, and the other is Data Driven Justice. Police Data Initiative works with police departments to say, hey, how can we actually open up our data? to provide transparency, and people can use it to help us think through problems faster. So if something's happening in a certain area, it starts to see patterns. See somewhere. patterns, or also, is this a policing structure that we want? Right. Is it working? One Correct. of the first things that we find is when the, the police department tries to release the data, they realize their data hasn't been collected well, so they mm -hmm. actually can't make good assessments. Right. Or they don't even... Well, no, everything is anecdotal. Everything, is. exactly. Right. Everything is when just... it's not anecdotal. It's, it's not. And so... Very basic questions of just use of force in these type things yeah. are out there. So anecdotal is always wrong, I think. Is that correct? Almost <laughs> always. Almost always. And, and one of the shocking things is what you expect from one department 
could be totally different from mm -hmm. another department, even if they're just a few miles from each other, because mm -hmm. there's no way for them to share or collaborate. Or use best practices. But there's no best practices. Mm -hmm. There's no, so what we did is we have now, you know, over 40 million Americans are covered by this, this thing, all the major cities, and the, all the police departments get together and they meet every other week to talk about how they're opening up the data, how do they make this usable, and what can come about from it. Just one of the things that's been really fascinating, because we often think of this as just police transparency, there's a department in the South that has been working with the University of Chicago to look at excessive use of force of data. And so these data scientists came in, and they started looking at machine learning techniques. And they started going, what are the features that cause this problem? And the first set of signals are all the usual suspects. You know, you're a bad actor. You obviously yeah. shouldn't be here. Suddenly in the middle, two interesting signals show up. One is that you responded recently to a suicide. Oh. Another one is you responded to domestic violence where a child was present. Oh, you got upset. You got upset. So imagine you go to one of the things. Suicide's exceptionally messy. Mm -hmm. It's a very horrible situation, emotionally, physically. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're done. You've written up the case. And somebody says, get out there, and you're back on beat patrol. You're, and then somebody's flippant with you. Mm -hmm. Like, we, who, where did the system fail? The dispatch system doesn't take this data into account Don't to say, like, like, let's give this officer, them. yeah, like, who, male, female, like, give the officer time to decompress. Right. Let's, let's treat them as a human sure. rather than a robot. So easy. So that is now being put into place. They're also realized that, gee, domestic violence where child is present, fights break out a lot, mm -hmm. highly emotionally charged. Why are we sending just two officers? Send more officers mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that's going to stabilize the situation. So they're now taking this test and iterate model and measure right. more effectively to do this. Right. So that's one side. So one of the things I just was recently at an event in Oakland, and they were talking about in Oakland, they're doing voice recognition, putting everyone's focused on the data cameras on people, mm -hmm. which have, have yielded very emotional things and a lot of proof of real violence, although it only tells part of the story, like you said. Right. You don't know ha what happened before that and before that. Um, and one of the things that was interesting is how they could tell who the police officer was talking to, their race, by the language, by la word clouds. Um, right. With African-American people, they would say, hey, and man. With white people, they'd say, sir, and hello, um, and which are kinder words, which are obviously more respectful words. And it was really interesting to see it. And they're trying to figure out what they can do from that. Like the people don't even realize what they're saying. Right. Although you think they would. That's why the open data actually is mm -hmm. so important. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't get that into other people's hands, the police department has no money. They, Do they, 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 are they open to this or resistant? They are. We're not racist. We're not this. We're not that. So it depends on the city. But by and large, we have found an unbelievable. These, these 129 cities have stepped up for police data mm -hmm. initiative. They're some of the biggest. They're right. like, you know, LAPD and, and Oakland, and they're, they want to do this. I'll tell you one of the troubling things that we all have to watch for. There's increased legislation at the state level that is coming in to say very classically, like, this is our transparency measure, but they aren't. They actually prevent people from accessing the, the data. And we have to really look closely at what those – are those in the police officer's best interests – are they truly in the citizens' best interest, or are they just in sort of some de facto, you know, somebody writing that rule that just prevents anybody from really doing anything useful for mm -hmm. finding a solution? Right. And, and that's, that's the place that we really need to, to work on. Because otherwise we're we, – we don't know. And I have no idea if 
what you see from Oakland with the words that they use is different from what we sure. see in LA or even sure. San Jose. It just was an interesting way to use data. And, Again, and, and, you exactly. Know, and, and get, get some learning from it. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. That's like this case where people are using this machine learning, these things. We have to unleash the potential of people doing smart things with the data. With the data. They, they already and we're flipping have. it around. Yeah. Can I give you the other one? Sure, absolutely. And then we're going to get back so, and talk about where things are going. Sure. So the, the data-driven justice, and that covers now 91 million Americans, has a hundred and... 30 plus now, I think this keeps going up, uh, uh, cities that have joined in. And what it does is it says, our criminal justice system right now is causing a ridiculous drain on society. And we all mm-hmm. know this. But it is, we just as a kind of quick numbers, we have 11.4 million people that are going through 3,100 jails every year. Mm-hmm. So that numbers just don't make sense. And we're not talking prison. Mm-hmm. Actually, 90 plus percent will never go on to prison. Mm-hmm. And they, on average, stay there 23 days. So we have created a cycle mm-hmm. and where we just cycle people through our local jails. That cost structure is one of our most expensive cost structures. Cook County Jail, which is one of our largest single institution jails in the United States, one third of the population is mentally ill. Why are they sitting in jail? We should get them to the treatment they want. So mm-hmm. what we did is we said- they need? They need, they need that treatment. And we also have opioid issues, all these things. So we need to get people to the care they need rather than forcing people to languish in jail. Right. Uh, What we have found is that if you take your data from your department of corrections, policing, that whole infrastructure, criminal justice, and move it over to the health side, you can very quickly identify who are the people that you see most often and need help. Right. And we're not talking like crazy big data. We're talking like, have you seen so-and-so? No, go fish. Like it's like pass the spreadsheet, and the cost savings are unbelievable. Right. Miami Dade, Florida did this. They trained their officers in crisis intervention to get them into the right type of mental health thing. Year one, they saved more than ten million dollars, right. but they more importantly, they closed a full jail. Well, could it be that people don't want those jails closed? I mean, well, there's the, a financial, so, so, there's so these, a financial well, incentive so for jails, many people. But that's pr- typically that's yeah. that's um, prisons. That's right. the the private the prison prisons. Systems. This is local. This is local, this is local jail. So these people never even get to the prison side of this problem, and they actually never were going to get to the prison. Right. These are people who are just so it's cycling. just using data to bring costs down of our government. Well, right. and be, get people to the right care they need. Right. Most importantly, stabilize them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's the part that's particularly exciting. That's that's why this data-driven justice initiative, when we just move some data a little bit, we can see large-scale transformation of how society. people behave, how it, how governments behave, that how government behaves. Okay. All right, we're here with DJ Paddle, the chief data scientist, who is making a lot of sense, which is really disturbing to me on so many levels. <laughs> Government can work. But first, uh, today's show is sponsored by Oxford Road. Ever wonder how these ads on podcasts work? A startup pays a host like me to read a script about their disruptive product or service. We know you're choosing to listen, and that means you'll probably at the very least give any product or service we mentioned serious consideration. But what if you are one of those startups who want to advertise on a podcast? Where do you start? That's where Oxford Road comes in. It's the leading advertising agency in consumer tech. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, Blue Apron, and more started on Oxford Road. Oxford Road engineers ads to perform. They buy media based on over $100 million in performance data, and their world-class analytics and attribution methods give you confidence in every line of performance, just like digital. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale, set up a free analysis, and find out what it would cost you to test ads on a podcast, and maybe the next script I'll be reading will be yours. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale right now. 
I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, I will tell you. Jim Lanzone, who you've known forever because he's been around the internet forever. He spent the last five years, though, at CBS where he's run digital, so we talked about how he got there. More importantly, we talked about how a big company like CBS manages the digital future. We also talked about nudity in the upcoming version of Star Trek, naked swearing aliens. And I don't know if I need to sell this anymore. I can just stop right now, right? That's figured. Thanks. Bye. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm here with DJ Paddle, the chief data scientist in the United States of America. We're talking about fascinating things like improving policing through data, improving health through data. Everything gets helped through data. Mm-hmm. We have so much data. But there's also the downside of data, too. All right. Tell me. Well, one of the things that we're very concerned about is the intersection of big data and civil rights. Right. So, one, And we released uh, two privacy. reports on this, on not only privacy, but data and algorithms and what happens when – People don't have transparency algorithms, or there's, you know, people do even nefarious things with data. One, uh, we've seen recent examples of this with uh, when you go in front of a judge, people are using data. You don't know where that data comes from, how it's being used, to make an assessment about the type of bail you should get. It's been shown that some of these are what you might deem as racist, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. That how do we make sure that there's that somebody's not just slapping a label on something that says big data solution or data science solution, and people go, ooh, that's good. Uh, we have to think through those things. If people think often, that, oh, that's just in these kind of net small areas, there's all sorts of cases, and we've seen this on image search or sure. the fact that even Pokemon Go or other places of e-commerce sites, they haven't supported certain environments because there's a lack of data. How do we think about that? How do we make sure that that has happened? That's why it's been so important that anybody who's out there and anyone who's listening to this, if you're a data scientist and you do not have training on ethics, you better go get some. If you're in a data science training program and they're not teaching you about ethics, you are not in the program that, you, that well, is the cutting edge. Well, that's part of the bigger problem in Silicon Valley in general. I Diversity mean, of teams right. and all of this. That you know, One of the fascinating things is uh, there's a picture I love that we have, which is called one of the jumbos. And there's the footwear of all the people just standing around uh, who are part of the president's national security team. Mm-hmm. There's pumps. There's, mm-hmm. like, there's all shoes of all types. You can tell the color of the feet, all type of ethnicities. That's how we get to better decisions is mm-hmm. like when we have the diversity. Why is there the – the Obama administration is quite diverse comparatively. I mean, here you must be like, hello. Uh, in fact – when I look at the U.S. Digital Service mm-hmm. or I look at 18F or any of these No, I've met a lot of them. It, it looks like Silicon Valley should look. That's, it's the way it, it is. It, exactly. Right. I mean, even the CTO team. Like, that's mm-hmm. how we're supposed to be. That's how we're supposed so to be. So why isn't it? I, I think it's just, frankly, You've laziness. You've worked in all these companies. Well, I do, laziness. too. As you yeah. know, I've said it a hundred times. We have a show on diversity this week that we just pulled out all the thoughts that people we've talked to around diversity. And wh- why, you know, here you are trying to build something for the U.S. government that has a diverse mentality, a diverse point of view. And I'm not just talking about race and uh, gender. It's age, age, disability, all kinds of experience, economic level. What happens here in Silicon Valley when you come back here? What is your assessment? Well, I have two reactions. The first is I I wish people would get out and see more of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about user research, but our user research is usually go hang out at the corner coffee shop and talk to a few people. Mm -hmm. I wish people would go out and hang out in the middle of Iowa. Yeah. I wish they would go out to Texas. I wish they would go out to New Orleans. I wish they would go out to North Dakota and see what people need. Uh, I think you would see that there's a very different world out there when we say, oh, that's just an edge case. Right. Those aren't edge cases. Those are the huge populations, and they have names. 
And when you put the names against them and you start actually talking to them, you see a different world problem. I find it really interesting that if you look at many of the people who were that so-called data wave, we were first national security people, then we were you know, social network kind of people. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of those people are all in some form of healthcare, right? You know, cancer research and other, other type of areas. And I think there's a, a different focus that if people have kind of wake, started to wake up and say, ah, there's more out there. To really get there, I think we also need our venture capital community to mm-hmm. also reflect those values. Yeah, and that not diversity. so much. Yeah, and you've written and wrote, talked about this. And, yeah, and I see like when we evaluate a problem, it is so unbelievably liberating when you're around a team and somebody's like, "Have you thought about it this way? Right? Have you? Have, did you know about this?" And you're like, "No." And no one's hating you for having that blind spot, but people are using it as an opportunity to tell you about a different group that you haven't been able to interact with. Do you imagine you'll come back to Silicon Valley after? I will. After? I, I, and the, the specific reason I will is, is, is my kids are here and my, my wife uh, wants to, to be here. But I'll, I'll tell you, like, one of the things that's a challenge is I have, I have two tough things for me as a parent. One is our kids go to a school where they don't interact with a broad ethnicity. Right. Two is they don't interact with society where the people that support our services and our most critical infrastructure, including those that serve, and whether it's police, firemen, or fire people, uh, Air Force, Marines, pick your favorite, they don't meet those people. They don't interact with them. And one of the most powerful things that I've taken away this year is watching my kids experience that and see that their world has shifted. Right. And that is seeing that world and how far we are from it is. Um, you mean it's not all froyo and pa- exactly. Palo Alto? It's, 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 what? Exactly. What? Right. It's not just Pokemon walking around <laughs> yeah. and, and just those type of things. It, it's not to hit on Pokemon Go. In fact, one of the most popular places to play it is the White House. But right. but it, it's. Uh, I, I think we have an opportunity to tackle some of our hardest problems. I love the fact that there's increasing number of people who are going into prisons. And, and David Hornick is, mm-hmm. is one of those people who's he really is. kind of championed saying, like, what can we do there? Or people uh, uh, who are started saying, like, what can we do about the homeless population? Right. And well, how do we think about that, not just as a narrow niche? I, there's so much more that we have the opportunity to do. And it's not What do you want to do? What would you do then? And I want to know what will happen to all these Obama administration initiatives. Because, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that we're looking at in this election, besides it's incredible, just the horror of it, a fresh horror every day, um, is the idea that both, neither of these candidates are tech forward. Mm-hmm. One less so than the other. Trump, for sure, he's back in the 70s. And I don't think uh, Secretary Clinton is very far along. Not Not where Obama is, for sure. The, our focus and, and is right now is to maximize the opportunity we have mm-hmm. and make the well, best case. How many days case. do you have? We have 10 weeks left. I don't go by days. <laughs> the okay. reason I don't go by days is yeah. every week, if you measure things in week, you can run a two-minute drill. Right, okay. And, and you can actually plan and game out what you can and can't accomplish and mm-hmm. be hyper-effective. Days are just a way of getting yourself freaked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but weeks is a, is a shipping schedule. So we have very clear milestones. So what are you we shipping? Well, and how uh, do you keep it in place? Well, the biggest one that we do is we work with the agencies. and Right, the really, individual. You've the, put people in the U.S. Well, digital service well, all over. The there's agency. people, but there's also these programs. So, for example, 
the police data initiative is going to, is really been developed jointly with the Department of Justice and what's called and the, that's where it in lives. the cops office, which mm-hmm. is cooperative uh, policing unit, mm-hmm. and that's where it lives, and that's that's who basically runs it. Precision Medicine is run by the National Institutes for Health. It's being run by Eric Dishman, who is not only a person that got this type of personalized treatment to save his life, and you know even received an organ as a result, but is a deep technologist. Who's been he'll stay. And he's going to stay. He's, serv- he's a these director. Are not he, this, is not, this is a career person. Career person. And who is not just, you know, this is a real solid hitter on every dimension. And he's mm-hmm. going to run that uh, with a great team that is being built out at National Institute for Health. So our programs graduate and they go into different places. Uh, and many of them have already uh, have, have continued to be there as, as, as things that they are going to happen. And so we look at it as a measure of these things have to, uh, in the John Lilly way of framing these things and, and others, is like, you know, we have to fire ourselves out of jobs. Mm-hmm. And we have to- As you move them as, to As other we places. move these other places. They, they, but I think the worry is here's, a, here's a, a presidency that has pushed these things into these areas. What happens if there's not that? And there will not be that, from what I can tell. Well, they, I can't comment on any of the elections because we, right. we have the of Hatch course. Act, obviously. But the part there that is- that we believe is the case is, and here's the thing that I found in every case of working with an agency, is the agencies have, and the career staff have wanted to do this. For a long time. For a long time. They've been saying like, where have you guys been? And like, why haven't you unleashed us to let us do this? Mm-hmm. And so now that they've been unleashed and, these, and they have the runway and the mandate, they're going to maximize that opportunity. What I think we need to do in Silicon Valley it, to make sure this continues is if we just say, ah, okay, we tried yeah. and disengage. We're back to the BlackBerry people. Y- yeah, <laughs> we're, like we lose. Like this only works if we have a model where we are continuing to serve, not by providing advice only, mm-hmm. but by literally taking a pause from here and going and stepping into the world and, and taking a and tour being of duty. Part of it. And being a part of it. Do you imagine they'll do that in a Trump presidency? I cannot I, see it except for. Our friend Peter Thiel. <laughs> well, so I can say yeah. I served in the Bush administration right, as so well. Right, so you served and, and, multi. And, and I think problems of national importance transcend okay. whoever is in the office. And whatever your political views are, whichever mm-hmm. way they go, I think there's always an opportunity to serve when the, the in call. Some in so some fashion. So you should not pull away from it. Um, I want to end up talking about something that President Obama said, and he's done a lot of different initiatives, the AI initiative, all kinds of things that have been happening. He was talking about the difficulty he has dealing with techies. Now, you're coming back here, and as, mu- as much as he appreciates them, and that's clear, there's all kinds of problems. Encryption is one, which you're, you were not involved with, but that's a big issue going to happen, going to keep going, sort of tension between them. The other is privacy. The other is monopoly power. The other is There's all kinds of things that you can see clashes coming on the horizon. Um, but one of the things he did talk about was the arrogance factor mm-hmm. and that techies come in and tell them how to fix things. And I think I, basically, if you wanted to boil it down, and I completely agree with him, is there's no app for Syria. The government isn't here to solve the problems they solve are intractable and not solvable in right. a way a tech mentality does. But tech people continue to come in and, and lecture. Right. How do you when you're looking at it from both sides? You've been in that world, and you also haven't, and have to take it from the other side. How do you reconcile that? Because I think the president is 100 percent right about yeah. that. Yeah, and his specific is. You know, it's that way of saying, like, those edge cases have names. Mm-hmm. And the problems that get to the president's desk in his time, 
there's no good solution. Right. By the time it gets there, there, right. there is no good solution. The way I have found and I have gotten over my own personal arrogance in these problems is, is literally by getting in there and being part of the conversation. And I see the complexity and the challenges that we face. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's even true on encryption. Like where there are very serious national security issues. There are also very, very serious and relevant well, we're seeing it in this election. privacy issues. Right. Exactly. And and cybersecurity as a whole is going to be a national priority. Oh, no. This election's being affected it, because someone couldn't protect a fucking server. That, really, it, pretty it, much. It, like, it, like. It, and it, it's what are your rights mm-hmm. when somebody has all your email right. and what like you know the private conversations how do we think about that how can we have private and, conversations and what happens you know that's just a conversation what is it happens when it's your health data mm-hmm. like what is, how, what's your recourse mm-hmm. like well, all of those things are things that must have resolution or major progress like mm-hmm. if not resolution major progress forward in society there's no way out of that. Autonomous vehicles is just one small portion of it. Right. Oh, that's a whole nother war. It's, it's a whole nother one, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have to think about it. And, 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 you know, we're even seeing at the local level, very tough conversations about self-driving cars, the, the ride sharing, you know, the, the whole gig economy. Jobs, exactly. Jobs all the, ex- exactly. All of those There's, things. There has to be a third designation of the, jobs. There, there has, and I think we're going to see a, a, like, all of these things, it's going to be radically different mm-hmm. within five years mm-hmm. in a way that we just didn't so even So to my original question, do we have people coming in, either one, that understands these massive issues that are about to roll through society around self-driving cars, around privacy, around mm-hmm. encryption, around so – these we are did. not photo apps. So, <laughs> this exactly. Is not, this, this is not, not deciding this, if Snapchat can that, – That's know. right. These, these problems – you know, this isn't just like, let's sketch it out on the whiteboard or right. do it on the back of the napkin while we're having huevos rancheros. <laughs> like, it's not <laughs> that. Like, yeah. This is like, you have to be in the situation room mm-hmm. and you have to realize that when the president's chief of staff says, remember, this is the meeting, there is no other meeting, that you sit in that chair with the responsibility of stewarding the whole entire history and responsibility for what this is for as a country. That is a very, very different mm-hmm. perspective than saying, well, let's just A-B test it. Right. Yeah. And, and You can't A-B it, test it, the terrorists. Exactly. You can't just – but what we have to do simultaneously is how do we take some of the best skills that we have learned, mm-hmm. like A-B testing, and say, okay, if we're trying to make sure that people get access to – food because they're a kid and is a foster kid, how do we make that system work efficiently? Mm-hmm. Well, we do have an A-B test. It's Dallas versus Austin. I see. It's Sal- so San it's Diego versus – like, we, we have natural A-B tests, and we have to learn from the different ones to figure out what each other can do. And, and pushing that agility in also as we buy systems, so we're not buying something yeah. that is – you know, doesn't make sense. Like we often buy software like it's an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. We don't buy it in the sense that we know mm-hmm. that we're going to learn as we iterate and build. Those advances work best when we're sitting side by side. Like when I have had those conversations as we've been building up the ideas of precision medicine and now it's starting to move to the actual build, no one's saying like that's stupid. People are saying, tell me more. Right. What did you learn? Right. That's Which is the way government should th- be It's supposed to work. And that's right. why I think it, we have to move to a model where we see it as 
not a question of did you serve, but when did you serve? Right. And, and it could be in all different levels. And right. I think we're, we start doing that and we make it more porous where people are coming in and out. We don't call that a revolving door. We call that an expectation to serve. Being a citizen. It's being a citizen. One of the things I do ask everybody, what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned from? Or you don't have to learn at all. It doesn't have to be a learning moment. What's something, if a lot of entrepreneurs listening, you're an entrepreneur, you're somebody who's worked in government. What's something you did and you thought, I should have done that differently? The one for this, uh, the government role is I have deep regret for how long it took me to say yes. When the answer is obvious and everybody else is telling you yes, it's super easy to doubt yourself and not see the quality of people that you're going to spend time with. And when you have a chance to work with people who are going to make you better than yourself, you should just sign up. Yeah. Palo Alto will still be here. Palo Alto will still be here. And as an entrepreneur? Entrepreneur, it's the same thing. It's it's uh, it's make sure to be around the greatest people. Often people tell me to say like, you know, people talk about the stock options and all mm-hmm. that stuff. What would you have paid to be part of the original PayPal Mafia crew? Mm-hmm. What would you have paid to be part of that core team that was building out LinkedIn or pick your favorite, mm-hmm. insert favorite company, mm-hmm. wherever? Because how much would you learn? Right. How much would that make you a better person? Right. And so focus less on the bottom line and focus more. Don't say ignore the bottom line, but focus on what you can do. And is that the team that is going to allow you to actually do remarkable Often things? Often you don't know it until you're in it, though, right? Uh, no, I think you know it if you talk to enough people. Right. If you talk to enough people and you spend time talking to people, it's very obvious because people are like, go work with that person, or other people are like, don't work with oh, that I person. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> PayPal's a hard one because there's some people I would really well, pay forget. not to work next yeah, to. People forget. Others. I was that color. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Right? People forget. Oh, we tell I don't this, forget. We tell I this re- remember like, now. <laughs> we, we, we tell this revisionistic story of we only win. Oh, yeah, color. Uh, exactly. Oh, that's so that that's, like, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you, got, you managed to make me forget it. Oh, you and Peter, right? <laughs> All of you. Anyway, DJ, it was great to, oh, that's another. When you come back, you have another company, right. we'll talk about your giant failure of color. It was I would say it was a great idea, but it really wasn't. Anyway, it, wasn't. Um, <laughs> it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming by. Uh, if you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with former AOL executive Ted Leonces, Mr. Robot creator Sam Esmail, and Representative Nancy Pelosi, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at rico.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for our sponsors, Audible, FreshBooks, and Oxford Road. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. <laughs>